Take your Bibles and go back to 1 Peter as we continue our series through this book. We'll look this morning at verses 6 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. What is your perspective on trials? How should a believer in Jesus Christ view the hardships in life that they face? And what is the difference between how a believer and an unbeliever view suffering? Peter's trying to provide for us a biblical, a Christ-centered perspective on how to view life in a hostile world. Do you know what a paradigm shift is? A paradigm shift is defined as an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. As believers, we've been given a paradigm shift through God's word. The way we view this world is part of what's been made new. In this letter, Peter encourages us to brace this new perspective, this new paradigm that the gospel provides. Perhaps we could think about it this way. Have you ever hiked to the top of Table Rock? It's not an overwhelmingly difficult hike, but it is challenging at certain points, especially as you get near to the very top. And the first time you make that hike and you're working your way up the most difficult parts of the trail, you may ask yourself, why exactly did I want to come on this hike? But then you experience the view. It's pretty unique because it's, it's bald at the top. You can see for miles around. You gain a whole different perspective, both on the journey and its hardship that you have just made, and on the views that you get to see. It's not common for us to be able to see like that, is it? Peter is encouraging us that the journey, no matter how difficult in the moment, is worth it. He's giving us a perspective. He's encouraging us to keep going. If you have been to the top of Table Rock before, and you're about to make that hike again, how does that knowledge of what it's like at the top shape your journey now? How would you encourage yourself on the way? Confidence in our God is like that. You see, Peter is providing us with this view of what this is really like. Even though he's on a journey as well. Through the Holy Spirit, he's telling us it's worth it. That inheritance that he is yet to receive is worth it. We can rejoice in what God is accomplishing in our lives. Even when that means we must Endure suffering in this life. Let's look at our passage again. We'll read this whole first, it's one long sentence, verses 3 through 12, and focus our attention in the message on verses 6 through 9. Let's begin reading then in verse 3. God's word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded. That is you. We are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Though that genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and then the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, those prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Let's ask for his help now as we look at these verses together. Father in heaven, we confess our need of your grace. We need your help to pay attention to this text, to hear well the argument that Peter is making for us to stand firm in your grace. Father, when we hear the word trial or suffering, we're immediately thinking of those things as negative. But here in the paradox of truth, you're telling us there are things that we can still, in the midst of them, take joy in. That they're a necessary part of our growth. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to be changed in our thinking, in our convictions, that what you are doing is good and right and purposeful and loving. And may we trust you more because of what we see of you in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning teaches us that God's people can greatly rejoice, even in trials, because he's using them to refine our faith. Now, as we think of trials, we need to be reminded what Peter is talking about. The kind of trials that he's referring to in this book are specific The various trials that Peter refers to in verse 6 come into the life of a believer because they've been identified as a follower of Christ. They're suffering for that identity of being chosen in him because they are his. Peter's not primarily referring here to the natural hardships that all people face as part of life on a sin-cursed earth. He's not talking about the suffering we face from sickness or financial hardship or relational hardship. These believers are facing distress from those around them because of their faith. That's the primary thrust. Though we want to resolutely keep this context, this primary focus in mind, we can apply these principles regarding suffering to other kinds of suffering that we do face in this life. But I want us to make sure we keep in mind first and foremost that they're suffering for a particular reason. That reason should cause us to consider, do I suffer at all 
because I'm identified with Christ? If not, is it because I'm being a coward? I'm hiding my faith from others. I, I'm passive. I don't want people to know that that's who I identify with because I know that will bring some kind of critique. This morning, we'll consider two main points from our text. First, God desires for believers to rejoice in their trials. God desires for believers to rejoice in their trials. Now, this is one of the things here at the very beginning of the letter that Peter's going to address. It's the elephant in the room. They're thinking, okay, being saved, coming to Christ is a good thing, a great thing. So why is it so hard? Our tendency as human beings is to view life very temporally. And if giving your life to Christ means I have to go through hard things now, I'm going to be tempted to abandon that faith. Is it worth it? And Peter right away wants to address this. And says that you can rejoice even in the midst of your trials. Now in the first part of this opening, verses 3 through 5, he's focused on the future. Here in verses 6 through 9, he's focused on the present. What these believers are facing now. And it begins in verse 6. In this you rejoice. The word for rejoice here is a very active word. It's an outward word. It's a demonstrative word. It means to experience an intense joy that is expressed outwardly. It's the same word used again in verse 8. We see this exemplified in Luke 1, 46, when Mary declares, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices out loud is the idea before other people in God my Savior. We see the word used again in Acts 16.34 where we read of the Philippian jailer. The jailer brought them, Paul and Silas, into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. And then in Luke 20, Jesus sent out his disciples to preach in his name. And they returned with joy. Here's that word again. This outward expression of joy that even the demons submit to them in Jesus' name. And Jesus tells them that he has given them such authority. But then he says, however, do not rejoice that the, the spirits submit to you. Rather, the idea isn't that you shouldn't take joy in that, but rather there's a greater joy. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying that's far more important. Though the power they experienced was amazing, Jesus tells them the fact that they have an eternal security is a far greater reason to rejoice. We have that same reason. This word rejoice is most often used to describe a joy that's resulting from a focus on God or the salvation he gives. It's unique to biblical literature. It's not found anywhere in secular Greek. Peter's saying that he rejoices because of the truths described in verse, verses 3 through 5. In this you rejoice. He's referring back to the fact that we have a living hope that can't be taken away. No matter what you face in this life, you have security. It's being protected for you. 
you have a relationship with the God of heaven. And that doesn't just mean you have a ticket punched for eternity. That means he's watching over you. He's guiding you step by step. You're his. He's brought you into his covenant of love. It means that we have a future inheritance that's guarded by God himself, he said. He's told us our faith will endure because God himself is guarding us. Not even our temptations toward unbelief can thwart his sovereign plans for us, can stop him from bringing us finally home. And here's what that's supposed to look like in your life. The knowledge that you have a relationship with the God of heaven is to give you such joy that it sustains you through all the hardships and heartaches of life. When you're being opposed by the non-Christian, when you are facing the circumstances of life that are difficult for you, that are hard, that are distressing, this is the foundational bedrock truth that you go back to. I am his and he is mine. You know, that can be a very difficult perspective for us to maintain, can it? We get fixated on now, on here, on what I see in front of me. And this is why we must preach this message. We must preach the gospel, the truths of God's grace to ourselves every day. Who are you really? Are you average American going about your life, working your job? Or are you an exile? Someone bound for a greater city. Someone tied to Jesus Christ himself. If we would have the kind of joy that's described here, this kind that comes out of us, we have to grow in our view of what God has done for us. It must be something we meditate on, that we are intimately familiar with, that we find personal That we rejoice in together as a body. And when you meditate on God's work for you at the cross, it is meant to overwhelm you and reshape your fears and pain and anxieties and heartache in what you're suffering in the moment. Remember the account at the end of Acts 5. The apostles are continuing to preach the gospel. Even though earlier in chapter 3, Peter and James have been arrested and beaten and threatened and told to stop preaching Jesus. The chapter ends, and when they had called in the apostles, that's the Sanhedrin, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This isn't an absurd kind of joy that takes pleasure in pain. But doesn't their reaction seem abnormal for us, even as those who name the name of Christ? I'm not sure that I would rejoice in that. That would only have to come through God's grace to me. It is joy in knowing something that those without Jesus can't see. This is a joy rooted in that relationship. It's a reality that reshapes how you view your circumstances. It's a perspective that sees opposition and trials through an eternal, Christ-centered lens. Do you have this kind of joy in your life? Believer, are you living with these truths shaping the way that you view your circumstances? With this 
perspective. This supernatural joy sustains you. Do you have that kind of joy? Knowing Jesus as your Savior is the only thing that can provide this for you. If you're an unbeliever here this morning and you're, you're thinking, this, this sounds strange to me. This is odd. How can Christians find joy in the midst of hardships? It's because we know Jesus Christ. And even as believers, we struggle for that joy. But it's provided to us when we're thinking and believing the right way. If you would know Christ as your Savior, he will give you that joy, that satisfaction in life. Verse 6 is going to tell us several things about our trials. First, our trials are diverse. You see that there at the end of verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. They're not all the same kind for each believer. The word translated various can mean different kinds or multifaceted even. You might feel at times like you're facing layer after layer of hardship or distress. Secondly, our trials are difficult. Peter does not sugarcoat this truth. This isn't pie in the sky, just grin and bear it. He's not saying it doesn't hurt. These believers' trials are difficult and painful. He says that they have been grieved or distressed by these trials. There's even an emphasis on the mental hardship of bearing up under them. Suffering is valuable for the benefits it brings, but it's still painful. Sometimes we mistakenly think or counsel others to ignore the pain of the trials that God allows into our lives. But that's not biblical according to this. Is it right to grieve over the suffering we face? I believe the answer is yes. Jesus did. We just sang his prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to go through this. Our perspective is not tied to what we see and feel right now. Our desire should be to learn what God wants to teach us through the hardship. To ask him to draw us near through those times. We should also recognize in this passage that we face these trials together. Now where do we see that? Well, look back at your passage. Verses 6 through 9. All of the pronouns you in these four verses are plural. Think you all you're all in this together he's saying this is something that these believers are going through in unison we weep with those who weep we want to be careful to give wise counsel when a brother or sister in our church is suffering we're patient we're slow to answer sometimes think of the wisdom of job's friends who are rightly called friends when they sit with him in silence for seven days sometimes it's wise to just sit and be present and be silent with those who are suffering number three our trials are temporary peter writes that these believers have been grieved by various trials now in this moment and he says for a little time now, his point is not saying that they will go away soon. Don't worry, guys. These won't last very long. 
That's not what he's saying. He couldn't know that or promise that. But by comparison to the eternal joys, these won't last forever. Do you see? It's a perspective. If you compare your suffering to what other people are going through in this life, you will likely find ways to be discouraged. But if you compare your suffering to what you will enjoy in the future for all of eternity, you will always be encouraged. It's a matter of perspective. Fourthly, our trials are necessary. This phrase, if necessary, provides us perhaps in verse 6 with the greatest encouragement. The idea is that the suffering that the believers face because they are Christ are not the result of fate or chance or the devil interacting with them. They are under the sovereign control of God himself. If necessary, who deems them necessary? The God of heaven, our Father. That means there's a purpose in them if necessary. He decides what we need. Peter makes this point again in chapter 4, verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. James writes in James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various, there that word is again, multifaceted kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect in your life so that you may be perfect and whole and complete, lacking in nothing. John Calvin writes of this phrase, Peter's purpose was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without cause, it would be grievous to bear. Hence, Peter has taken an argument for consolation from the design of God. Not because the purpose always appears to us or we can see it, but because it is God's will. So one commentator concludes, Christians will experience grief like this only as it is necessary in the light of God's great and infinitely wise purposes for them. Only as he says it's necessary. Now this doesn't mean that we should try to assign a specific reason for every trial. Nor does it minimize the human sin often connected to suffering. But we can know for certain that God is working out his plans in our lives, even through the pain. Jerry Bridges writes, there's no such thing as pain without a purpose in the life of a believer. Do you believe that? Are you believing that now? With the trial that God's allowed into your life now. He continues, it is true that we often cannot see the connection between the adversity and God's purposes, but it should be enough for us to know that he sees the connection and the end result he intends. Martin Luther once pointed out that if he had not been attacked as strongly as he had been, he would never have come to the place of such conviction or to a full development of the doctrines of faith as he did. Our joy at his merciful and wise plan to save us is meant to carry us through the hardships that he brings into our lives. So not only does God desire for believers to rejoice in their trials, but secondly, he desires for believers to understand the purpose of their trials. How does a believer know if his faith is real? 
that it's not just something he says around company who will find his profession acceptable. How can you know that your belief in Jesus Christ is authentic? Peter says, here's how. Here's one way. It's the test of endurance. Does your faith endure the hardships? Does it keep on trusting even when it seems like all of the hardships are telling you this is not worth it? You can let go. God's providing the test in order to prove to us that he will hold us faith fast, that our faith is truly authentic. The joy that comes from knowing him, that we have a future home in heaven, that we know his resurrecting power will keep us and sustain us through our trials. We can have great joy in the midst of them, not because we somehow enjoy them, but because of what they demonstrate to be true in confirming whose we really are. Do you see your trials in that light? He's testing your faith. Someone once asked the Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs, how they could know whether or not they really love God or that they love the world. And here's his answer. He said, that will be seen by observing the bent of our heart, how it is swayed toward God and his service, and how towards things below. When two masters are parted, their servants will be known by whom they serve, by following their own master. Blessed be God, in these times we enjoy both religion and the world together. He's saying we're in a time of ease, and it looks like you can enjoy life and enjoy the things of this world. We're not stressed so much right now. We feel that. He continues, but if times of suffering should approach, then it would be known whose servants we are. If trouble and persecution should arise, would you stand up for Christ and set light or give up by liberty, riches, credit, all in comparison of him? Trials reveal authentic faith. That's part of their purpose. Trials reveal whether you have true faith or not. First, we see genuine faith is eternally valuable in verse 7. Let's look at that verse again. Peter writes, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The illustration here is meant to persuade us that a tried, genuine faith is extremely valuable. Notice that Peter reaches for that metal, that most precious of commodities. He's saying that the purity of faith brought forth from the testing is far more precious than the purest of gold. How will you know your faith is real if it's never been tested? One reason God allows trials in our lives is to prove the existence of our faith. That's a kindness. Do you see that? That's how Peter is consoling these believers. Don't be so frustrated at the trials. Recognize that as you endure them, you're proving that you have supernatural life. Another reason he allows trials is to purify our faith. Spurgeon once said that trials aren't just to burn out the dross in our lives, but also to burn in the promises of God. Peter writes later in chapter 4, 12, Do not 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal in the Christian life. He continues, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You're united with him by this experience so that you also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want you to think of it through the Bible. Can you think of any examples in scriptures of a believer who did not face hardship or some crisis of faith? Whereas faith is tested. Can you think of any? Think back through your own life to the moments that have been some of the most difficult and trying. Some of you have faced the loss of family members, gone through cancer, endured all kinds of other testings. I can testify, I know in my life, I've learned the most about God and his faithfulness to me in those times when the pressure is the strongest. When God brings us to the place where we've been stripped of our dependence on everything else and everyone else but him, those are important and valuable lessons for our faith. We see God in a very real way in those moments. These are the moments of my life, of your life, that stand out as the clearest, as to proving the reality of our faith. The hymn writer John Rippon penned these words as coming from our Lord, coming from his mouth. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. I think he likely had this passage in mind. The only way Christ-like character is developed in any believer is in the crucible of real life experience. And God is the one who orchestrates and superintends those particular circumstances that each of us needs. How are you viewing your trials? Secondly, genuine faith is divinely rewarded. Peter also says here in verse 7 that the testing of our faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now whose glory is Peter focused on in this verse? Is it God's glory or is it ours? We know that God is certainly worthy of these, but there is a secondary sense where we know God will reward believers who have endured when he returns. I think the idea is that we're swept up into his glory. We receive all that adulation because we're in him and we've endured. Listen to what Peter writes in chapter 5 verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Third, in verse 8, genuine faith is focused on Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This focus on Jesus produces an inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. The idea of inexpressible joy means belief in him produces a confidence, a hope, a joy that cannot be quite described. Think of it, Peter even uses the word inexpressible. I can't describe it. We don't have the words. It defies all human efforts at understanding or explanation. 
Do you have that sense of peace, that hope, that being united with the risen Savior gives through all the turbulent times of life? Fourth, genuine faith endures. Verse 9, Peter is saying that believers are presently receiving the outcome of their faith. They're presently enduring it. They're obtaining it. That's happening now as they walk by faith. This is the process of growth in the Christian life as we continue to daily walk with him, loving him, trusting him, rejoicing in him. We're receiving more and more the blessings of our salvation until that day our salvation is complete. Have you ever met a mature Christian that seems so stable and so joyful in their faith? They seem unfazed by what normally shakes us and causes us so much anxiety. What produces that kind of stability? I think this is the view we're given of the Apostle Paul. How could they, how could he sing and rejoice in the Philippian jail after he and Silas had been beaten again for preaching Christ? How do they respond this way? I think I would have given up. I think I would have been quiet that night. I think I might have concluded that God was not for me. And yet their confidence in Christ made the things of earth look so strangely dim. Their perspective was Christ-saturated. George Mueller, over one seven-year period, seldom had funds for more than three days' needs for the orphans he was caring for. Over his lifetime, he cared for thousands Often the need was met on the very day, sometimes just as the children were sitting down to eat. He wrote of these kinds of trials, the Lord gives faith for the very purpose of trying it for the glory of his own name and for the good of him who has it. And by the very trial of our faith, we not only obtain blessings to our own souls by becoming the better acquainted with God if we hold fast our confidence in him, but our faith is also by the exercise of it strengthened. And so it comes that if we walk with God in any measure of uprightness of heart, the trials of our faith will be greater and greater. God in his wisdom is using circumstances and pressures to continue to draw us close to him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, is he, is he making light of them? Not at all. He says they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them by comparison. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The supernatural joy that a believer gets from his relationship with Christ carries him through all these obstacles. Notice the word though in these verses in our ESV. Look down there again. Notice that word though. It's repeated several times. The believer can greatly rejoice even though he's grieved by his trials. He can greatly rejoice even though his faith is going to be tested. He can have joy even though we do not now, we do not yet see our Savior. 
Our passage tells us to rejoice in our trials because our God is strengthening us so that we will endure. This is one of those passages where the primary application is to change the way we think, what we believe, what we treasure. I pray that we would grow to see God as so amazing and so faithful and so loving to us that we would be willing to live for him and yes, even suffer for him. We will endure well only as we continue to grow in our understanding of his multifaceted grace. Unless you despair that you're not sure that you have enough faith to hold on to him because you can't see him. Because life is hard and it's easy to let go. Look back again at verse 5. Where he says, who by God's power you are being guarded. He's holding you. The author of Hebrews writes, Consider all that Jesus endured for you, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured. Do you see? He suffered. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Consider his endurance for you so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He endured the wrath of God so you would never have to. That is your sustaining joy. Why is the believer to choose joy in the midst of hardship, opposition, and trials? because his heart trusts that God is lovingly working in his life for good and for his glory. One Puritan author wrote, God has thoughts of love in all he does to his people. The ground of his dealings with us is love. The purpose of his dealings with us is love. He has regard in all to our good here to make us partakers of his holiness and to our glory hereafter to make us partakers of his glory. I want you to picture a parent taking their small child to the pediatrician for their yearly shots. Your child is rightly apprehensive, even fearful of that needle to come. Tears begin streaming down that little face as the nurse prepares their arm for that shot. What will you tell your child in that moment? How will you comfort them? We'll say things like this pain will be all over in just a minute. It won't last long. We'll say we can stop at your favorite restaurant for a special treat afterwards. There's rewards to come if you'll endure. This temporary pain is necessary to help you grow healthy and strong. It's important that you go through this. We wouldn't tell our child that the pain they're experiencing isn't real. Or that you're doing this just to make their life more difficult. That's not why you're going through this process. There's purpose in this painful choice. There's great love and concern for them in this parental choice. Aren't these all the same things that our Father is saying to us through the pen of Peter this morning? Endure. This is good for you. I've paved the way for you. I endured much greater for you. 
What is your perspective on the trials that God brings into your life? Do you need a paradigm shift? God wants to shape your view through these words of Peter. Your trials as a Christian are no accident. While they are difficult, they will not last forever. They come from the sovereign hand of a very purposeful and loving God. He brings them into your life to prove that you have real faith, to refine the faith you do have. You can rejoice in them because he is loving you in them and through them. They wouldn't exist if you weren't his. Let the hardship draw you toward him. You see what God is doing through the perspective that Peter here is providing? Rejoice that as a believer, your life, your eternal destiny is firmly in his loving hands. Let's close this morning with prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we rejoice that we are yours. That you're a good and wise father who knows exactly what we need. That although we cannot understand the hardships sometimes that you allow, we can with joy, with great rejoicing, know that we are yours. Lord, this is a paradox to our minds. We have joy and hardship and distress and grief. And only you can make sense of those. Only a sovereign and loving God can work those out for your glory and for our good and our growth and a greater relationship with you. Lord, help us to trust you more because what we've heard Peter say. Help us to believe that you are working all things for your glory and our good. Help us to be able to count it all joy when we face various trials. And Lord, grow our faith. Help it to be a shining example to others that they would identify us with Jesus Christ even when that means we will face opposition because of it. Help us to see that in the way that you told us to see it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.